Susan was just 17. She was standing in front of a closed door, and on the other side of it was her birth mom. This would be Susan's first time meeting her. She took a deep breath and opened the door. I remember her standing up, like, right away and just, like, rushing over to me and giving me a huge hug. And she was crying and, like, touching my hair and touching my face. They were in a bland conference room at an adoption agency, the same agency that had facilitated Susan's adoption so many years ago. They embraced each other. Her birth mom kept saying Susan's name over and over again. It was like, you know, this has been 17 years in the making. I felt her love for me and I felt her grief right away. They shared the same curly hair, same eyebrows. Susan was in a kind of dreamlike state. I remember her smell. I remember being like, oh, that's what she smells like. (laughs) And like really liking her perfume. It was a lot to take in, but it was like, oh, thank God this is finally happening. Like... I'm not going to have to live with these questions. Like, I am going to know who I am, where I come from. And um, there won't be someone out there missing. That longing, all the years spent wondering. It was difficult. For a while, those feelings left her body and mind. But what teenage Susan didn't know at the time is that many years later, she'd be missing someone else. She'd have more unanswered questions. And she'd find herself in a very similar reunion. Only this time, Susan would be reuniting with her child. I'm Rima Reis, and welcome to This is Uncomfortable, a show from Marketplace about life and how money complicates it. And today we're taking a look at the ways money can complicate adoption. There is such a huge range of adoption stories out there. It'd be impossible to cover every perspective. So we're not going to try to do that with this episode. Instead, we're focusing on Susan's story. We're only using her first name because we're telling her story just from her perspective. It's pretty remarkable, and hearing it made me think more deeply about adoption. Who profits from it? Who can be hurt in the process? And just how emotionally nuanced it can be. Susan always knew she was adopted. Her parents didn't know much about her birth mom, just that she was Polish and that she was pretty young, which is why she placed Susan for adoption. When Susan was a kid, she had a hard time explaining her identity to people. When I tell people that I'm Polish, they don't believe me. They think I'm something else. I must be something else. But Mm -hmm. I don't know what that is. And I don't know how to talk to my parents about that. They didn't have that info. Susan has brown eyes and dark curly hair. No one knew anything about her birth father. She was an only child. Her parents adopted her because they couldn't conceive on their own. They'd never expressed anything but respect and empathy for Susan's birth mom. Susan describes her childhood as pretty happy. She grew up middle class in Chicago. She was athletic and a strong student who volunteered in her spare time. Her parents would often tell her, you are the perfect child. And she knows they meant well. But looking back, it made her feel like there wasn't space for imperfections. I think for a lot of adopted people, there's a sense of like, you know, we've got to we've got to earn our place. <laughs> we've mm. got to earn our keep and our families. We've already lost one family and we don't want to lose another. And so I think for some adopted people that shows up as like, you know, being perfectionists and trying to do the most all the time. She tried hard not to get in trouble, not make waves. One of the few times she can remember getting into an argument with her parents ended with her yelling at her mom, slamming the basement door, and then turning up her favorite song, Time After Time, by Cyndi Lauper. I remember lying there, just like lying on the ground listening to the song and crying and thinking about my birth mom. It was like maybe the first time where I didn't Like, it didn't make sense to me that I was crying. Like, I knew there was something, like, big there, but, like, I didn't entirely understand it. The lyrics stuck with her. If you're lost, you can look and you will find me. There was a deep well of sadness within her that she couldn't quite name. 
Then when Susan turned 15, the feelings mushroomed. She couldn't contain them anymore. She wanted to start an earnest search for her birth mom. Susan was adopted in the 80s when closed adoptions were the norm, meaning there's no contact between the birth mom and child after the adoption is finalized. Adoptees get little to no information about the identities of their birth parents. Record-keeping at adoption agencies was also pretty inconsistent. But Susan took a first step. She went to the adoption agency and asked, Do you have any records relating to my birth mom? And it turns out, they did. The records had just been sitting untouched in an office for 15 years. They handed her a manila folder. I remember being in my kitchen and just, like, devouring the non-identifying information, like, just Mm -hmm. sitting at the kitchen table and, like, oh, my God, like, what is this? The file didn't include her birth parents' names, but she got answers to some other big questions. Birth father is Mexican, Native American. Mm. (laughs) So that was like, okay, finally, I know what I am. They also gave my parents um, a letter that my birth mother had written to me, like, several days after she gave birth to me, that they had had that whole time. Oh, my gosh. And they just didn't bother to give it to your parents or even let them know that it exists? Like, As far as I can tell, yeah. That just blows my mind. It was, you know, this, like, incredibly heartfelt, like, mm. heart-wrenching letter. I'm pretty sure what she said was, like, that she loved me, that this was the hardest thing she'd ever had to do. She explained why she placed me for adoption, that she was um, 16 when she got pregnant, (laughs) 17 when she had me, and, um, you know, that it wasn't for, like, lack of love, but, like, more of just, like, I'm not ready to be a parent, and I want you to have a better life. Susan's birth mom had also left her a gift. They also, uh, the agency had had, you know, Basically, since then, um, um, a necklace, <clears throat> a necklace that she wanted me to have, oh. and like, <laughs> I put that necklace on right away. <laughs> oh. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's just. <laughs> can't even imagine. You know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm 42 and <laughs> I've known my birth mom, you know, since I was mm-hmm. 17. And just like the fact that this can go like straight into <laughs> all of those feelings. Oh, it's just yeah. like such a reminder of like, yeah, like how hard it was and how um, important it was for me to like gather these pieces of myself. A couple years later, Susan was 17, the age her birth mom had been when Susan was born. She felt ready to meet in person. The adoption agency coordinated the meeting, which is where we started our story. After Susan and her birth mom hugged each other in that office conference room, Susan pulled out a photo album. I pretty quickly was like, hey, like, here's this photo album that my mom, you know, put together for you. Like, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. this is, let's look at this so I can, like, show you what my life has been like so far. Susan's parents were also with her that day. Initially, they waited outside the room. Susan knew they were having a hard time with the whole thing. I think they even said... We wish you didn't want this, but we'll support you getting this. I get that they were scared that, like, I was going to love her more. She was going to replace them. It was going to make things complicated. Did you say anything to comfort them or how would you respond to them? Yeah, I I didn't and I couldn't. Like, and I think to some degree I got, like, oh, this isn't my job to, like, comfort you. Like, I'm the kid. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, like, you need to be the parents. (laughs) Susan's parents came to accept her relationship with her birth mom. Over the next several months, Susan would visit her birth mom every now and then. They lived just an hour and a half away from each other. 
And eventually, Susan met other members of her birth family, including her birth father and her half-brothers. It was transformative. Meanwhile, Susan began college and was excited about the future. She was majoring in photojournalism with the hopes of one day traveling the world. She had no interest in getting married or having kids. Not now, probably never. She wanted to be untethered, a free spirit. She got a taste of that her junior year when she traveled to South Africa. When she came back, she started dating a guy at school, Austin. He made her laugh and had beautiful eyes. It was supposed to be a casual thing. But then... We, um, you know, we were sexually active, and my birth control failed. And I found out that I was pregnant maybe six or seven weeks after that. Susan was just 20 years old. She remembers sitting on her bed with her boyfriend in the room and a positive pregnancy test in her hand. She felt a tension in the pit of her stomach. There was a fleeting thought of, what if I terminate? What if I have an mm-hmm. abortion? It was fleeting. It sort of came and went. Susan is pro-choice, always has been. Sitting there on the bed that day, she turned to her boyfriend. And I pretty much immediately said, I'm going to place this baby for adoption. I think I felt this, like, unconscious, or maybe even conscious, like, well, my birth mother did this for me, so... I need to do this mm-hmm. for someone else. Oh. Like, I somehow owed her or owed the universe. Mm. Like, I have to do this thing that's going to be really hard um, because that was done for me. There was, of course, another option to parent the child herself. But that seemed impractical. She was still getting her degree, still financially dependent on her parents. I'm going to have to finish school while... Her father, like, somehow supports us. And I just imagined, like, you know, living in, like, a small, you know, apartment, basically, mm-hmm. and that there just being struggle and mm-hmm. that there wouldn't be enough time for anything and that there wouldn't be enough money. Susan felt clear-headed. Adoption was the best route. When she was two months pregnant, Susan flipped through the phone book. This was the 90s. And she called the first adoption facilitator on the list. But before we move on with her story, I just want to take a second to explain the basics of how private adoption works within the U.S. Agencies typically recruit pregnant people and work on matching them with families hoping to adopt. You can also go through a private attorney and do that process independently. While working on this episode, I was surprised to learn that there are far more people who want to adopt infants than there are people who want to place their babies for adoption. As you might expect, adoption fees are very expensive. It can usually cost anywhere from $30,000 to $60,000 to adopt a newborn baby domestically. A chunk of that money goes towards legal fees, but the bulk of it goes to the adoption agency itself. After Susan called up the facilitator from the phone book, they gave her and her boyfriend Austin a binder of 10 families to choose from. There wasn't a ton of information. A letter and maybe like one photo of the potential couple. Susan had two big priorities when choosing a family. First, it absolutely had to be an open adoption, meaning everyone involved knows each other and is in regular contact. My child cannot experience what I went through, and I will not let that happen, and I won't do this if it's a closed adoption. My vision is that basically we would get to see her grow up, and she Mm -hmm. would always know that we loved her, and that even though we felt like we couldn't be her day-in and day-out parents, that we um, were there for her. Second thing was stability. Her baby would need to have the things Susan had growing up. Two parents and a comfortable, happy home. I had just sort of been conditioned as an adopted person to value, like, financial security and to value stability over Mm -hmm. things like blood and, like, lineage. Paging through that binder of families, Susan and Austin found one that fit the bill. It was just this very, like, white picket fence, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of stereotype of, like, the, quote, perfect family. 
the mom was planning to be a stay-at-home mom. So it was like, okay, mm. you know, they have the ability to do that. They looked upper middle class. They owned a home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were going to get a dog. A picture-perfect family. Susan, along with her parents, met the couple. Her parents hit it off with them right away. They, of course, had been through an adoption process themselves, so they bonded pretty quickly with the couple. Now that they'd selected a family, all Susan had to do was wait. At that stage, it was a little bit of a relief. Like, Mm -hmm. we know what's going to happen, and now I just have to, like, get through this pregnancy. The adoptive family paid for her medical bills, and since she was still in college, Susan's parents helped out with rent and food. Then, when Susan was about five months pregnant, she found out that she was having a baby girl. She could feel her kicking. She became acutely aware that this was the only time she'd truly have as her daughter's only mom. Something within her shifted. I remember, like, uh, it was like springtime and just really feeling, like, connected to my daughter and to life. And I remember, like, smelling flowers and, like, talking to her, like, you know, these flowers are so beautiful and, like, I can't wait to, like, show you flowers. Mm. And so, yeah, just, like, starting to relate to her as, like, a person who was going to be here. Susan felt the weight of her decision to place her daughter for adoption how she wouldn't be the one feeding her crying baby in the middle of the night, teaching her daughter how to count to ten or clapping when she walked for the first time. She wouldn't introduce her to all the small, beautiful things in the world. A wave of doubt washed over her. You know, those feelings of, like, I just really love her, (laughs) and (laughs) I don't know if I can go through with this. Early on, the adoption facilitator had recommended she write a list of all the reasons why she wanted to place her daughter for adoption. She'd think back to it whenever she felt this way. You're still in college, and you're not Mm -hmm. married, and how would this work? And, you know, this is the right thing to do. This is the smart thing to do. Mm. You need to stick with your plan. And knowing she'd still be in her daughter's life brought some amount of comfort. The adoptive parents would remind her... We believe that you can never have too many people loving a child. Mm. You know, there's nothing you can do that would make us end contact with you. Her brain was telling her, place your daughter for adoption. It's what she needs. But emotionally, it seemed impossible. Still, Susan moved forward with the plan. On the day of her delivery, she was surrounded by the people she loved, her parents, her best friend, and the baby's father, Austin. They weren't dating anymore, but they were on good terms. The couple adopting her daughter would visit the next day. Labor was a blur. It lasted 27 hours. It was intense. It was painful. And then Susan heard her daughter cry. She'd entered the world. The nurses immediately put her on Susan's chest. I remember her, like, holding onto my hospital gown, (laughs) Mm. and we just, like, looked at each other, and I was like, you've had a big day today. (laughs) (laughs) And, like, her father's crying, like, sobbing, and I was just so happy to meet her, and Mm -hmm. I was also really glad to be done with labor. But Mm -hmm. I was like, you've had a really big day. Typically, within the first hour or so after birth, a mom will breastfeed her baby. But Susan hesitated. I was fighting my desire to, Mm -hmm. like, bond with her because I was Mm -hmm. like, if I breastfeed, I don't think I'll be able to place her. If Mm -hmm. I let myself, like, really fully go there as a mother, like, I'm just not going to be able to do it. It sounds agonizing to deny a primal desire to connect with the baby you've been growing in your body for months. When it was time to discharge, Susan told the hospital social worker, I'm not ready. I was like, I need another day in the hospital. I'm not Mm -hmm. ready to separate tomorrow, which is when they like medically would have discharged me. So she's like, okay, I'll see what I can do. So she got me another day. And that's probably when I started to be like, why do I need more time? And, you know, am I doubting this? 
Seven months earlier, when Susan first contacted the adoption facilitator, it felt like she'd boarded a train, steadily heading towards the moment she'd eventually hand her daughter off to another family. After she gave birth, it felt like the train sped up, and now all Susan wanted to do was pull the emergency brake. I just kind of kept, like, denying it until it was, like, literally a few hours before I was supposed to discharge, and then it was like... Just everything needs to come to a halt. Like, I don't know if I can go through with this. After the break, Susan makes a decision. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. Welcome back. When we left off, Susan was considering her options, gaming out what she and Austin, the baby's father, would need to do if they decided to bring this baby home and start parenting her. First, Susan called the agency, looking for advice. They told her, remember that list you wrote of all the reasons why you're doing this? Pull that out. I am just, like, in the feelings of, like, how much I love her. I don't even care what's on this list. It's totally irrelevant now. (laughs) Now I just have to figure out, like... Can I walk away from her? Susan needed advice from her parents. They were actually back at home waiting around with the couple planning to adopt Susan's baby. Because her parents are adoptive parents themselves, she felt like they sympathized more with the couple than they did with her, which stung. Still, Susan was just 21 and she wanted guidance from her mom and dad. So she called them from the hospital. My mom was very much like, you can't do this to them. (laughs) And um, if you don't place her, we're not going to pay for your college anymore. And it was this like emotional, um, almost blackmail moment of like, you either do this thing that you said you were going to do and make these people happy and not bring shame on our family. Or Mm -hmm. if you're going to do this, like you got to do it without any of the support that you've come to rely on from us. And I just like very quickly hung up the phone and I just lost it. (laughs) I mean, money absolutely was a factor at that like very critical time of like, I I had never had to be self-supporting, much less Mm -hmm. support myself and a baby. Looking back, Susan realizes what she really needed was an unbiased opinion Her parents felt connected to the adoptive parents. Like her, Austin was in turmoil. And the adoption facilitator, well, they're trying to facilitate the adoption. The hospital social worker, who is like the only neutral party, (laughs) Mm -hmm. who like came into my room and was like, I hear that you're having a hard time, you know, um, very like empathetic and like... Mm -hmm. um, Um, just like being kind and like, Mm -hmm. you know, how can I help you make this decision? (laughs) The social worker told her. I think you already know what you need to do. What do you think that is? It was like assuming that I knew my answers and I just needed like permission to say them or something. Yeah. And how did you respond to that? I felt like she deserves to have this life that I believe she'll get to have with her adoptive family Mm -hmm. that I didn't believe I could give her. I was like, I think I need to stick with my original plan. And, um, you know, I just need a little bit more time to say goodbye. And, you know, then I can leave the hospital. Throughout the pregnancy, Susan had been listening to a lot of Simon and Garfunkel. One of her favorites was Bridge Over Troubled Water. 
Hours before being discharged, alone in that hospital room, Susan and Austin gazed into their daughter's eyes as they played that song. Sail on, silver girl, sail on by. Sail on, silver girl. Your time has come to shine. All your dreams are on their way. And if you need a friend, I'm sailing right behind. I think those are the lyrics. So that was very much what we wanted for her. They cried as the song played. She decided to go through with adoption. Susan and Austin left the hospital, met up with the adoptive parents, and handed them their baby. Even though she'd made the choice that felt logical, that would leave her free to have the adventurous life she dreamed of, the car ride home was excruciating. I didn't, like, want to die, but I was like, it would be better if, like, the car flipped over and I was killed. It was almost as if my daughter was dead. The grief was overwhelming. Yet life continued. Her senior year of college began just a week or two after she gave birth. She had classes, exams. She went back to her routines, as if this traumatic thing hadn't just reshaped her world. I threw myself back into school. I can't just be thinking about this Mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. I can't just, like, wallow in this grief. I'm just going to, like, grind, get this done, graduate, and then go back to, like, what I thought my life should be like. Over the next few months, every now and then, she'd get a packet in the mail with pictures of her daughter or a phone call with updates. But Susan started to worry that she and the adoptive parents weren't on the same page. They only wanted her to visit once or twice a year, while Susan had envisioned visiting more often. She wanted her daughter to feel her love for her, to not experience the same pain she did as an adoptee. Susan's relationship with the adoptive parents started to feel strained. Then, six months after giving birth, the parents emailed her. They told her, We have wonderful news. We actually were able to adopt a second baby. She's just a couple weeks younger. Um, You know, we're so happy that they're going to have each other growing up. And I was like, what? The family had apparently adopted this second child six months ago, just weeks after they'd adopted Susan's daughter. Yet they'd never mentioned to her that they had any intentions of doing that. If this is wonderful news now, why wasn't it wonderful news six months ago when you first found out that you were going to adopt another baby? Like, I was just livid. I just felt completely deceived, lied to, betrayed. Susan had imagined her daughter having her parents' undivided attention, at least initially. But her anger wasn't really about that. Susan felt betrayed because she'd shared so many intimate details of her own life with this couple. She'd introduced them to her parents, confided in them about her fears, shared her medical details. And they hadn't shared that they were adopting two babies instead of one. Susan sat at her desk and began typing them an email. I did not hold back my anger. I didn't name call and I didn't threaten and I wasn't nasty, but I wrote my truth. I would not have chosen you if I knew that you were the kind of people that thought it was okay to hide this kind of information. She told them she would have been happy for them had they told her sooner, but that omitting this big detail hurt her trust in them. Austin, the baby's birth father, wrote an email to the couple too, expressing his feelings of anger and betrayal. So we send them our emails and they wrote, the dad wrote back and was like, Um, why can't you guys just be happy for us? We don't understand, like, why you're so negative. Susan showed us their email exchanges. The adoptive dad told Susan that because of her hostility, they were canceling an upcoming visit. Susan apologized. She was planning to leave the country for a two-year stint with the Peace Corps. She pleaded to see her daughter before then. Months later... He wrote back with the worst possible news for Susan. We've consulted with our attorney, 
and they're advising us to end contact with you. Oh. You're too angry to be a part of our family. We don't think it's good for us or our daughter. Wow. They'd assured her throughout her entire pregnancy that she would always be connected to their family. Now, no more visits with her daughter. I was, like, just in shock and also, like, like, what can I, like, can I, can they do this and can I fight this? Can I fight this decision? Throughout the process, she had every reason to believe it would be an open adoption, that she'd have direct contact with her daughter as she grew up. Susan leaped into action. She called up everyone she could and asked, what can we do about this? The professionals that I was working with, they were like, don't worry, we're going to talk to them. We're going to remind them of what they said and how we operate and why open adoption's best. But that didn't work. So then Susan appealed to the family directly. I wrote back and was like, will you please reconsider? Like, can we talk? Um, I think I might have said, like, I thought you said there's never too many people loving Mm -hmm. a child. Like, what happened there? They wouldn't budge. Susan had lost contact with her daughter. When I first heard this story, well, first it shocked me. And then I wondered, is this even legal? Susan told me that she'd called lawyers, but they told her, look, the only way you can nullify this adoption is if you can prove that there was fraud. And that's a tough thing to prove. Pursuing it would take years and tens of thousands of dollars. And by the time you finish, if you even win, your daughter will be old enough that leaving the adoptive parents and returning to you will be traumatic. But that's unlikely to even happen because you'll probably just lose this case, be out tens of thousands of dollars, and be on even worse terms with these parents. So Susan accepted that there would be no quick solution that would reunite her with her daughter. Like Susan, her daughter would grow up not knowing her birth parents. Over the years, the parents wouldn't send anything to Susan directly, but they'd send some updates to Susan's parents. Susan would send birthday cards to her daughter. She'd keep the message pretty superficial— Happy birthday, I'm thinking of you. She wouldn't dare to say anything that could be construed as inappropriate for fear that the few updates she would get would also be taken away. Yet Susan never gave up trying to reconnect. Every few years, she'd write to the parents. I would try different strategies. Like, one time it was like, hey, like, I'm not even asking to see her anymore. Can we just talk, like, as adults? Can we have a conversation? She thought, well, saying the wrong thing made them cut me off. So maybe if I can say the right thing, they'll reconsider. But nothing worked. Still, she kept reaching out. I want a paper trail that I asked them every few years and they said no. Because Mm. I want my daughter to know that I didn't stop trying and that I don't know what stories they're telling her. I don't even know if she knows she's adopted. Susan put everything in a binder with the hope that one day, if she could ever reconnect with her daughter, she'd be able to show her how hard she'd fought to be in her life. I would send her uh, birthday and Christmas presents every year. Oh, really? Like what? Like toys or cute dresses or like books. But I didn't know, like, are these presents just like going into the ether? Are they getting tossed out? I don't know. As the years passed, Susan kept moving forward. She went to graduate school and became a therapist, specializing in marriage and family counseling. She came to forgive her mom for issuing that ultimatum while she was lying on the hospital bed. And it was during this time, in her mid-20s, when she had a kind of breakthrough moment. In graduate school, she'd been taking these classes on human development, learning the trauma that happens when a newborn is separated from their mom. She started to think not only about her daughter's experience, but about what it means that she herself is adopted. She describes her reflections as coming out of the fog. It's a term that many adopted people use. The fog represents, like, the dominant societal narrative that Mm -hmm. adoption is good and adoptees are lucky and should be grateful and adoption is a win-win-win for everyone And there's no space for other feelings. I think the fog is also obscuring that adoption is an industry and that people profit from it Mm -hmm. and that 
motivations might not always be good. Susan learned that the adoption industry is way more complicated than it seems. There are for-profit attorneys, for-profit facilitators, for-profit mediators who, the more placements they do, the more money they make. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's just a fact. Some experts estimate that the American adoption and child welfare industry is worth more than $24 billion. Because there are relatively few babies placed for adoption compared to people hoping to adopt, agencies can increase their rates and their profits. And levels of oversight vary. Each state has their own individual laws about private adoption. Learning all of this made Susan think about her own adoption differently. Why did she grow up knowing so little about her birth parents? Why hadn't the agency told her parents about her birth mom's letter? Susan also started to think about the way that she was treated when she was pregnant. Looking for adoptive families, she was only allowed to speak to one family at a time, which seemed to really center the needs of the potential adoptive families over her needs. And I think the professionals even said, like, well, you know, this is a vulnerable thing for them, so we don't want people to get their hopes up. And it's like... Okay, yes, their feelings matter. I get that. And in retrospect, it's like, um, you know, who's the really vulnerable person here? One of the most difficult parts of coming out of the fog for Susan, and for a lot of adopted people we spoke to, was that people often see criticism of the adoption industry as an attack on people seeking to adopt. Susan encountered that a lot as she got more involved with adoption activism. Like, if she talked critically of her own adoption... People would feel protective of my parents, but they loved you so much. They were such good parents. Like, you know, that it's like people can't hold two things. It's true that Susan's parents love her and she had a good childhood. And it's also true that being separated from her birth parents was a deep loss. And that closed adoptions can be harmful. Today, Susan works in the adoption world. Her organization mostly works with families after an adoption has taken place, offering services like counseling and summer camps. But they do a small number of infant placements. Susan will tell pregnant people who are in a similar position that she was once in that they have the option to change their mind, even if they bonded with the people hoping to adopt their baby. People will say to me, um, you know, they're so nice, and I'll say... Yes, they're nice. They, you know, we have we have nice families. They're nice people. We believe mm-hmm. in them. And you don't owe them your baby. Just because someone wants to adopt a baby does mm-hmm. not mean you owe them yours. When I asked Susan about how she would reform the adoption industry, she said only allowing nonprofits to handle adoptions would be a step in the right direction. And Susan is critical of all the money behind marketing campaigns, the targeted ads directed towards vulnerable pregnant women, For example, when we were researching for this story, we saw an ad that read, get paid to give your baby up. When you consider that poverty is a big reason people place their child for adoption, these ads, as shocking as they are, can also be enticing. I think it's creating competition and desperation, neither of which are (laughs) child-centered. This is going to sound really gross, but there's a sense of, okay, For adoptions to happen, we have to have, quote, the product, which is the baby, and who is the holder of that product is the pregnant person. She worries that professionals sometimes lead pregnant women to make decisions while they're in a state of panic. Like Susan told me about a woman who went to the hospital for abdominal pain and then discovered not only was she pregnant, she was in labor. She had a stable living situation but was stressed about having things she'd need for a baby and was considering adoption. I'm thinking about myself at the hospital 20 years ago being like, okay, if I were to bring this baby home, I don't Mm -hmm. have anything. Mm -hmm. And so I say to people, look, babies don't need a lot at this stage. And the things that they do need, we can help you get those things. Mm -hmm. So it was like, what are the things you think you need in order to bring this baby home, take some time to decide? One of the things was, she was like, I don't know that I can afford a breast pump and I don't know that my insurance can pay for it. So we had someone who donated a breast pump that we could give to her. The woman was able to go home with her baby with basics like a car seat and diapers and take the time she needed to make a decision. I think about how drastically different 
this conversation could have gone if it was someone who was invested in convincing her that adoption is what's best. And of course, there are some people who simply don't want to parent, even if they have the finances and social support to do so. When that's the case, Susan considers it her role to make sure that adoptions are done in a way that's transparent, where everyone involved feels supported. I guess I'm motivated to make it a more ethical experience for pregnant people. In the 15 years since Susan gave birth to her daughter, she kept sending birthday and Christmas gifts, never getting a response. It was depressing. But she also came to accept that this was her reality. She had to keep going. She fell in love, got married, and had a son. Then one day, Austin, the birth father, reached out to Susan with some big news. Apparently, his brother had been using one of those websites like 23andMe or Ancestry.com. Austin's brother had told Austin, um, <laughs> I just got a match with your daughter, <laughs> and she's tested on this website. It felt too good to be true. Right away, Susan got a DNA test and submitted it to the website. When they messaged her with the results, she had a direct match. It read, mother and child, had both her photo and her daughter's photo right next to each other. Not even birth mother, it just was like mother, you know, like not conditional, just mother and child. Susan sent her daughter a message. Something like, hey, it seems like you might be looking for information about me or your family. Um, You know, if you ever want to reach out, here's my number, here's my email. We've always loved you and hoped that, you know, you might want to see us someday, but whatever you want is what we want to do. But Susan didn't get a response. Then, about a year later, her daughter turned 18. And so Susan reached out to her on Instagram, told her happy birthday, that she loved her and she was still there if she ever felt ready for contact. A day went by, no response. Then, before falling asleep, Susan checked her Instagram one more time. Her husband and son were asleep in the bed with her. And I could see, even though it was like a day later, I could see that she was typing, like the three dots. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) And there'd be three dots and then it would stop. And then they're like, then they'd pop. Your heart would stop. (laughs) Yes. Oh my God. Like such suspense. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's happening. What did she say? It's so good to hear from you. I'm sorry if I, you know, haven't responded until now, but I'm really glad that we're in touch. Something like, you know, I I hope that we can start talking or connecting. How did it feel to get that message? Surreal, amazing, um, so exciting, (laughs) healing. Susan left the room and went on a walk in the moonlight. There was like a lake nearby. Um, It was, you know, nighttime and I just needed to like, I don't know, do something that felt like ceremony or like, like acknowledging like this is, this is a turning point. The moment Susan had longed for, for nearly 20 years, it was finally happening. The baby she'd held in her arms, who she cried over that day while listening to Simon and Garfunkel, wondering who she might one day become, that baby was now a full-grown adult who wanted to get to know her birth mom. For the next two years, Susan and her daughter corresponded on Instagram. Susan's approach through all of this, very social worker style, was to let her daughter take the lead, have her dictate the pace of their relationship. They'd trade Spotify playlists and talk about their favorite artists. I would keep it a little light to some degree because I wasn't sure how much depth she wanted. Sometimes her daughter would go months without responding. They'd never talked on the phone. The thing that kind of shifted was um, I actually recorded a video of myself narrating photos from an album that I had put together when she was a baby. Ultrasound photos, pictures of me pregnant up until like the last Mm -hmm. time I had seen her. After years of walking on eggshells, Susan finally told her daughter the story of her adoption, the way she'd loved her and struggled with placing her, and how things had gone sideways. 
Susan's daughter responded with a video of her own. I mean, one thing she said was something like, I had never heard your voice, Mm -hmm. and hearing your voice for the first time just, like, gave me chills. (laughs) And then she asked Susan a question. I know this is crazy, we're in a pandemic, but can I come see you guys? Obviously. (laughs) Yes. Like, absolutely. How soon can you get here? (laughs) Susan had been waiting for this moment, for her daughter to initiate their reunion. They arranged to meet in the Bay Area where Susan was living. When Susan was around the same age as her daughter, she'd met her birth mom back at that agency office. Now, Susan was standing at the airport waiting for her daughter. Susan felt the same way she did before. All she wanted to do was see her, to hold her. When her daughter landed, Susan got a text with an update. I got off the plane. I'm on my way. Susan was at the bottom of an escalator watching people come down. In a few moments, she'd be in the same room with her daughter for the first time since she was a baby. And... um. She she comes down the escalator, and we give each other huge hugs, and um, I am crying, and she's like, are you okay? And we just um, looked at each other for a little bit. It, it sucked, because it was the pandemic, so we had to wear a mask, but oh. I'm like... Can I take, like, I'm like, can we, let's just take our masks off for a second. Like, yeah. I just want to see you. I mean, she's just, she's so beautiful and, you know, she's so sweet. And, like, I don't know how she felt, but for me, it was like, it just felt very natural. And the big conversations started before they'd even left the airport. We haven't even gotten the car yet, I don't think. She's yeah. like, um, do you work in adoption because of me? <laughs> How did you respond to that? I was like, (laughs) yes, sort of. Um, You know, I'm also adopted, so that's part of it. But yeah, there's there's a big part of me that, um, you know, wanted to do the work I do so that people could have a different experience than the one that I had. They got to know each other. Susan soaked in her daughter's mannerisms, her laugh, how good she was with her little brothers. By that point, Susan had two sons. She noticed the similarities between her and her daughter, how from the nose up, they look almost identical. Susan gave her daughter the binder she'd made with all the evidence of ways she tried to stay in touch during their separation. It was a lot for her daughter to take in. Lately, Susan and her daughter have been trying to make up for lost time. They took a road trip from California to Washington, and Susan's daughter finally reunited with her birth father and his family. When Susan was making the decision to place her daughter for adoption, it was because she wanted her daughter to have a better, more secure life than the one that she, as a 21-year-old, would be able to provide. This phrase, a better life, is used all the time in the adoption world. As Susan came out of the fog and learned more about adoption, she began to think about it differently. That adoption doesn't mean trading a bad life for a good one, but that the two possible paths are just different. That felt especially true when Susan learned more about her daughter's childhood. Without going into detail, her family has not been picturesque. And I do feel like, you know, that on that one aspect of her having a more financially stable life mm-hmm. than I could have given her, that happened. But yeah. there were things about how she was parented that um, were really hard for me to learn about. And things that I hadn't even, like, realized would, (laughs) could happen or would happen. It didn't matter as much as Susan thought that they had the white picket fence and vacationed in nice places during the summer, or that there were two parents in the home. Those aren't the only things that can make a childhood good. Sometimes Susan thinks about what life would have been like had she made a different decision. I know that I would have loved her and would have done my best. And I just don't know what it would have looked like for me to have parented her, you know. So it would have been different. Mm -hmm. And I think some things would have been better than what she had. And some things would have been harder than what she had. But she knows 20-year-old Susan made the best decision she could with the information she had. 
She tells me she doesn't dwell on what-ifs. It's a pointless exercise. She accepts how everything unfolded. Talking to her, I was struck by just how seamlessly she was able to move forward in life, despite all the grief and anger she felt. How instead of it paralyzing her, in a way, it propelled her. She's always been focused on the things she can control. And these days, that involves organizing big family visits with her daughter, trading playlists with her, and advocating for a system where adoption is focused on children, not money. that is all for our show this week. While researching for this episode, we came across a lot of great resources about adoption. That includes uh, memoirs, articles, other podcast episodes. We've included those recommendations in our newsletter, which you can sign up for at marketplace.org comfort. And I should say that this is the last episode of our season. We'll be back in your feeds later this year. But in the meantime, if you want to stay posted on our whereabouts, definitely be sure to sign up for the newsletter. We'll also have a link for that in the show notes. You can also find me on social media, or you can shoot me and the team a note at uncomfortable at marketplace.org. We're going to be looking for some new stories, so definitely reach out if there's something you'd like to hear on the show, or if you have a personal story you want to share. And lastly, if you like what we do, please consider rating and reviewing the show. That stuff actually really helps us out. It makes it easier for other people to discover our podcast. And, you know, it also makes us happy to know that you're liking the show. This episode was lead produced by me, Alice Wilder, and hosted by Rima Crace. We wrote the script together. The episode got additional support from Hannah Harris-Green, Yvonne Marquez, and Marque Green. Zoe Saunders is our senior producer. Our editor is Jasmine Romero. Our intern is H. Conley. Sound design and audio engineering by Drew Jostad. Bridget Bodner is Marketplace's director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. Neil Scarborough is vice president and general manager of Marketplace. And our theme music is by Wonderly. Special thanks to Mark Anfinson, Benjamin Lundberg-Torres-Sanchez, Skylar Swenson, and Mars Wood. All right, we'll catch y'all later this year. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy.